Let's pray together. Oh, our Lord and our God, speak to us this evening, we ask, for your servants are listening. So as we stand on the threshold of your word, may you incline our hearts to it, not to anything this world has to offer us. May you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Unite our hearts in reverent fear of you and satisfy our hearts in your steadfast love. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. God is committed to fulfilling his word. We saw that last week. We saw that right in the first verse of Ezra. And last week we saw something quite remarkable. God is so committed to fulfilling his words, he fulfilled them through a pagan king. Is that not remarkable? God fulfilled his purposes through a pagan king. And this evening, as you can see, we're looking at God fulfilling his purpose through his people. But before we turn to this evening's text, and before we read it, someone asked me a great question at the start of the week. Uh, I didn't address. The question was this. Why is the book called Ezra? I should probably mention that in an introduction to a series on the book of Ezra, so forgive me for not doing that. Well, the book itself I would summarize as being about faithfulness to a faithful God. But Ezra is a person, he's a scribe and priest, and he doesn't appear until chapter 7 of the book when he brings a next crowd of people from Jerusalem, sorry, from Babylon to Jerusalem. And from then on, he is the central figure in the book, but it's not primarily about him. It's about a faithful response in the people, or will there be a faithful response in the people to a faithful God? And in our early chapters of Ezra, in this first wave of exiles returning, they are led by a man called Zerubbabel. And if you've ever read the book Haggai, Zerubbabel is in that also. And as we come to our text this evening from verse 5, we've got to keep verse 1 in mind of Ezra. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. We've got to keep that in the back of our minds as we go through our passage this evening. Well, as we do turn to Ezra chapter 1 from verse 5, if you've got a church Bible, this is on page 473. And let me read for us from verse 5 of chapter 1 to the end of chapter 2. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, 
which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Sheshbazar brought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to their own town, in company with Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Saraiah, Relaiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpah, Bigvai, Rehum, and Bena. The list of the men of the people of Israel, the descendants of Parosh, 2,172. Of Shephatiah, 372. Of Era, 775. Of Pahath Moab, throughout the line of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. Of Elam, 1,254. Of Zatu, 945. Of Zakai, 760. Of Banai, 642. Of Bebai, 623. Of Asgad, 1,222. Of Adonakam, 666. Of Bigvai, 2,056. Of Adin, 454. Of Atta through Hezekiah, 98. Of Bezai, 323. Of Jorah, 112. Of Hashem, 223. Of Gebar, 95. The men of Bethlehem, 123. Of Netophah, 56. Of Anathoth, 128. Of Asmapheth, 42. Of Kiriath, Jerim. Kephara and Beeroth, 743. Of Ramah and Geba, 621. Of Michmash, 122. Of Bethel and Ai, 223. Of Nebo, 52. Of Magbesh, 156. Of the other Elam, 1,254. Of Haram, 320. Of Lod, Hadid and Ono, 725. Of Jericho, 345. Of Sena, 3,630. The priests, the descendants of Jediah, throughout the family of Jeshua, 973. Of Imma, 1,052. Of Pasha, 1,247. Of Harim, 1,017. The Levites, the descendants of Jeshua and Cadmiel, of the line of Hodaviah, 74. The musicians, the descendants of Asaph, 128. The gatekeepers of the temple, the descendants of Shalom, Atta, Talmon, Akup, Hatata, Shobiah, 139. 
the temple servants, the descendants of Zehar, Hasuphar, Tabaoth, Koras, Sayah, Padon, Lebanah, Hagabah, Akub, Hagab, Shalmai, Hanan, Gidel, Gahar, Reaiah, Rezin, Nekoda, Gazam, Uzzah, Pasaiah, Basai, Asna, Moanim, Nefusim, Bakbuk, Hagufa, Haha, Basluth, Mehida, Harsha, Barkos, Sisera, Tima, Nazaya, and Hatapha. The descendants of the servants of Solomon, the descendants of Sotaya, Hasapheth, Peruda, Jala, Darkon, Gidel, Shaphatiah, Hatil, Pokereth, Hazabai, and Ami. The temple servants and descendants of the servants of Solomon, 392. The following came up from the towns of Telmela, Telharsha, Kerub, Adon, and Immer. But they could not show that their families were descended from Israel. The descendants of Delaiah, Tobiah, and Nicodah, 652. And from among the priests, the descendants of Hobaiah, Hakoz, and Barzillai, a man who had married a daughter of Barzillai the Gilead and was called by that name. These searched for their family records, but they could not find them, and so were excluded from the priesthood as, as, as unclean. The governor ordered them not to eat any of the most sacred food until there was a priest ministering with the Urim and Thummim. The whole company numbered 42,360, besides their 7,337 male and female slaves, and they also had 200 male and female singers. They had 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. When they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave freewill offerings towards the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work 61,000 zaraks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. The priests, the Levites, the musicians, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants settled in their own towns, along with some of the other people, and the rest of the Israelites settled in their own towns. Hey, we made it. We got through chapter two. <laughs> Dundee is the focal point of the world. Well, at least in my life and my wife Amy's life, this is often how it feels. We both studied in Dundee. Amy worked in Dundee for a few years after we moved to Edinburgh. And so we've got lots of friends from the city. And every now and again, we all like to meet up together. Friends from uni coming back to Dundee or us all gathering together somewhere else, reminiscing about old times, sharing stories we love about the city we love. We should do this more often. It's good to be together. That's how get-togethers end often, isn't it? It's good to be together. Last week we saw that God had scattered his people in judgment they had rejected them as their gods, and he had warned them, and they wouldn't listen. So he allowed the Babylonians to come in to conquer and to take them away. 
But in those warnings, we saw of God's judgment. There's almost a promise that one day God would gather his people back to Jerusalem. And here in these opening verses of Ezra, we see this promise beginning to be fulfilled. God gathering his people. We have two points, as you can see, by the word of God from Ezra 1.1, the people give and go, and by the word of God, the people are gathered. To fulfill the word of the Lord that Cyrus has just announced, he's sending the Jewish people back to begin the rebuilding of the temple. And notice in verse 5, we see something similar to what we see in verse 1. He moves the heart, or literally he stirs the spirit. But here he stirs the spirits of the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and Levites, as they hear Cyrus's proclamation. The same God who, who stirred the spirit of Cyrus to proclaim liberty from Babylon to these enslaved people now stirs up the spirit of his people to live out that which has been declared to them. Everyone has heard this proclamation and yet only some responded to it. Let's remember that they didn't have to go home to Jerusalem. Cyrus wasn't forcing them out. But for these people to stay would have been disobedient to God. They're living a comfortable life in Babylon. Things actually were quite good for them. Why do you need anything to change? To leave would mean traveling through a sort of wilderness back to a ruined and rubble land. Many that stayed, I imagine, counted the cost and thought, no. But to stay was to be disobedient. In Isaiah 48, Jeremiah 29, 15, 51, and actually back in Deuteronomy 30, all talk about why they were to return to Israel. What has this possibly got to do with us in Dundee? What's this proclamation got to do with us and their response got to do with us? Well, a proclamation went out from King Cyrus, a call to be freed from slavery in Babylon and to go to return to Israel. A proclamation has now gone out from King Jesus, a call to be freed from the power of sin and darkness and to be transferred into his kingdom of light. Many heard the proclamation in Cyrus's day, and many today hear this proclamation from the Lord Jesus Christ. As you tell people about Jesus, they hear it. As they come tonight, as we come here tonight and hear the gospel explained, we hear it. But like those in Babylon, they heard the call, and they didn't answer it. They didn't think it was worth returning to Israel. And many hear the call from Jesus and do not think it is worth turning to him. But in the same way as the proclamation is heard from King Cyrus, who responds? Well, only those who had their spirits stirred. And so it is with us as we hear the gospel. It is only when God stirs the spirits 
of those whom he will save. When we hear the proclamation of King Jesus, it's God who stirs our spirits to set the captives free. Back in Ezra here, it was only by God's grace that anyone left Babylon. Only those who God's spirit, sorry, only those in whom the spirit God stirred did return. And today it is only by God's grace that anyone is saved. But I think there's something quite crucial here about who is being sent back. Have a look at verse 5. Why is it only the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites? We need to go back in time a bit here. Israel was originally one kingdom split off into two. There was northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Northern kingdom was first conquered by the Assyrians. The Assyrians then conquered by the Babylonians. But the southern kingdom stayed faithful for a small while longer. The southern kingdom, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And here God is calling these people back to Israel and the priests and the Levites. Because let's remember last week, we saw that in the book of Ezra, we see something like the exodus happening. But it's not the birth of a new country we see, but rather it's the rebirth, so to speak, of a country. And have a look in verse 6 and see who gives to this work in their return. It's neighbors, Jews and non-Jews together. Not only does God stir the spirit of Cyrus to speak, to proclaim... As one commentator says, God also inclines the hearts of strangers to be kind to his people. Last week we see God providing through Cyrus, and here this week we see God providing through all people. I'm sure actually many of us can testify to this, where for some reason we see the people we don't expect providing for the Lord's work. I used to work for UCCF, and a few of my financial supporters were non-Christians. I can understand it. They were paying me to do something they totally disagreed with. And yet the Lord's provided for that work through them. There's a relay worker, a 10-year program with UCF. His, almost his entire money was supported by a non-Christian family. Again, it makes no sense, yet the Lord provided for him through them. I heard a story this week of a new church building, well it was new, being built part-funded by the EU. Who'd have seen that coming? Yet the Lord providing through people. And actually in any paid work we do, in any money we receive from the state, does all this also not come from the hand of God? As you saw last week in the Exodus, we see that when the Jews were freed from Egypt, God enabled them to plunder the Egyptians. And here again we see him providing for his people by those around them. Why is God able to do this? Well, because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. A couple of months ago, Amy and I were down at uh, City Key at the Frigate Unicorn. It's this big, big old ship. I don't even know if been before. It's worth going. We went when it was free. That's always a good day to go, isn't it? And... Um, I loved it. I, I, I had a great time there. Tabitha was sort of learning to crawl a bit, so Amy looked after her, and I went off exploring around this boat. And I had Amy's water bottle uh, with me, and for some reason or another, I left her water bottle behind. And so we got home. I was on Facebook writing to them, is there a bottle? I left it here. So I think, yes, there was. And so the next day after church, we rushed down, and I met the guy at the front of the boat, and he handed me this bottle 
To him, I was probably some incompetent husband who'd left something of his wife's behind. But to me, that bottle meant something. That was a bottle I gave Amy when we gave birth to Tabitha, so she had enough water to drink. I thought, this would be useful, let's get this for Amy. But to that guy, it was nothing. But to us, it meant something. And in verse 7, we see something else being returned. Cyrus brings out the temple vessels that were taken from Jerusalem, the consecrated gold and silver, items precious to the Jewish people, but taken by force by the Babylonians, a sign that they had been conquered, that they had authority over them. These things now being counted out and returned to the people of God. To those in Babylon, it was perhaps a mundane administrative task. Perhaps another people group going home and here's their sacred goods, we must count back for them. But to the Jews, this was a monumental moment. They were getting the very things they held dear returned to them. The old political kingdom may have gone, but them as a kingdom of priests is on the cusp of once again being alive. God is faithful to his word. He is committed to his covenant, to his people. And he had called them to be a kingdom of priests, a kingdom which displays to the world the glory of God, a kingdom which displays his beauty, a kingdom which means that people can see what what it's like to know God and be brought into being one of his people. They are to be a kingdom of priests to the world. And here they're on the cusp of this beginning once again, as their sacred goods are returned to them. I think they must be in awe of seeing these things once again, these things they held once dear being returned to them. One moment before we move on to chapter two, perhaps the eagle-eyed of you may have noticed those numbers there don't add up to 5,400. I thought I should probably address it because I'm sure there's people thinking that there. Well, why do why these things here add up to 5,400? Well, the honest answer is, I don't really know. I was reading commentaries, they also don't really know. Some think it's because of confusion when it's translated. Others think only the important vessels were counted in the smaller numbers and the bigger ones were the lesser important ones, so to speak. Either way, we don't really know. But that doesn't change the fact it's there and doesn't change the main point here that the articles of the temple are being returned to the people of God to go into the temple of God. And then we have this staggering, world-changing statement in verse 11. Sheshbazzar brought all of these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem, a turning point in world history. God is faithful to his words, and by his words, his people give and they go. In chapter 2, we see that they are gathered. We see this huge list of people, don't we? This picture of people traveling back to Jerusalem. What would it have looked like if you'd seen that? 40-odd thousand of football stadiums worth, well, in the English Premiership, maybe, football stadiums worth traveling back home. Would it have looked mighty? Would it have looked awesome? Well, in one sense, yes, I imagine it would have done. This traveling village of captured people returning home. Then again, it probably wouldn't look that mighty, that awesome, to be honest. Just a group of people traveling home. 
It looks impressive, but perhaps not as significant if you looked at it another way. If you looked at it through a different lens, these tens of thousands of people traveling for months back home, you see God's good hand guiding them, protecting them as he brings them home to fulfill his word. It looked like a testament to the goodness of God and his faithfulness to his unfaithful people. What we have here in this chapter isn't a narrative of a journey, but rather we have a list of who made it. And what do you see when you see this list? What did you think when you opened up your Bible and saw Ezra 2? What do you think halfway through the chapter thinking, man, we've still got the rest of it to go? It looks like a list of names and numbers, and that's what it is. It is just a list of names and numbers. These are names of people. People who are needy of God's grace, like you and I. I think this list shows us that it's not just the great heroes that God recognizes. That even if people don't see you, God still sees you. That's why I wanted to read that chapter in full. Perhaps you're here at St. Peter's and doing things no one sees. You get no recognition from anyone. The Lord sees it. He knows your labors. The Lord has good work for us to do each day. It could be in your place of work, in your bringing up of children, caring for ill or aging loved ones, tidying your garden, tidying your home, speaking to a neighbor, praying people, countless other things. The Lord has good work for us to do. Things which may go often unseen, unthanked, but the Lord knows it. He sees it. And I've been really challenged by this this week looking at this passage. Perhaps uh, your, your parents or your grandparents, and it comes to nighttime and your home is just trashed. I think, is it really worth tidying up again? The same thing's going to chucked out in the morning. Is it worth doing it again? Well, I think it is worth doing it again. Ordering our homes, doing what I think is the Lord's work in the home. Yet things that often go unseen, unthanked, yet the Lord sees them. He knows them. Every person matters to him, not just the great heroes of the faith. Let's start digging into this list of names, this chapter, and see how it's set up. Lists are cool, I think, in the Bible. If you don't think it yet, lists are quite cool, whether it's numbers of this or genealogies. They're important. Don't skip them. It's an administrative list, isn't it? But it's also a personal list. Families listed. With families come homes in verse 1. People each returned to their own town. Memories of growing up. Memories of home. And this is ordered. They're identified by their name or geographical location. We said until verse 35, was it? Then there's the priests, then the Levites. There's the temple servants, the descendants of Solomon's servants. Then those who've returned without a family record. And finally, some statistics at the end. But this isn't a list of anyone who fancied to come was allowed to come. Everyone had to prove their credentials, including the priests. Do you see that in verses 59 and 62? People had to show they were descended. They had to show their family records. 
Well, why was that? Well, the returning exiles have a concern for purity. They don't want to make the same mistakes as the past. They want to remain faithful to their faithful God. Here's a question to ponder. What would be the most wonderful thing Jesus could say to you? What would be the most wonderful thing Jesus could say to you? Notice in verses 68 and 69, some heads give free will offerings and gave what they could to the treasury. They gave what they could. Perhaps you might think of Mark's gospel in chapter 14. Jesus speaking to uh, Mary, the sister of Lazarus. She pours pure nard on his head and says she did what she could. I think, is that not what the Lord asks of us? He does not tell us to give as others give. He doesn't tell us to do as others do. Some of you may remember when Dick Lucas was here at a DECA conference after our church weekend away, the former rector of St. Helens Bishopsgate, and he said something on that passage in Mark which struck me. He says, I don't think the Lord expects us to do more than we can. She did what she could. These heads gave what they could in response to what God had done for them in bringing them home. In verse 69, they gave what they could. And for some, that may have been a lot. For others, it may have been very little. But they gave what they could. In response to following Jesus, finally meeting him, I think those wonderful words would be, well done, my good and faithful servant. You did what you could. Wouldn't they be wonderful words to hear from Jesus? You gave what you could. You did what you could. And as you get to the end of Ezra chapter 2, the people of God are in God's place, sort of. They're in the land. They're in Jerusalem here, but spreading to their own towns. But there is no temple Let's remember what I said last week, what covenant blessing looks like. God's people in God's place, with God's presence there, ruled by God's king from the line of David. There's no temple built for God's presence. There's no Davidic king. They're in God's place there, sort of, but not yet, really. Flick back to chapter 1, verse 11, where we meet somebody called Sheshbazzar. In some translations, in the ESV, for example, it says that he is the prince of Judah. Shezbazah, the prince of Judah, was with them. Really, he's more like a governor appointed by Cyrus. For there is no king of the Jews. These are the days of King Cyrus, king of Persia. For the Persians were kings, then the Greeks were kings, then the Romans were kings. And then in Luke chapter 1, we hear these words from the angel to Mary. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. 
The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. There is no king of the Jews, line of David, until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this king, as we have seen at the start, made and makes a decree. But his decree is much greater than Cyrus's decree. Here we see people gather from one country to another, but Lord Jesus Christ and his decree gathers people from all nations of the world. He gathers them now, as we have prayed already. He gathers them as the gospel is proclaimed across the world. For the church is the kingdom of priests to which that passage that Ezra pointed forward to. As 1 Peter says to the church scattered in exile from their heavenly home, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful, marvelous light. This is the work of the church right across the world to declare the praises of him who called us out of slavery, out of darkness, and into his kingdom of light, and to do it to all peoples. And one day when King Jesus returns in glory, he shall finally gather his people together and bring us into the new Jerusalem, into the renewed creation. And when the Lord Jesus' decree is answered, there will be people there from every tribe, every language, every tongue, every nation, all gathered together. And he shall reign over us once for all as rightful king, having judged his enemies. What a wonderful day that shall be when his decree is fulfilled. It is good to be together. And it is best to be with the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, it is wonderful to think that we sit here as people alive in you, for you have stirred our spirits to respond to your call. Why did you stir our spirits and not others? We do not know. Yet we marvel at your grace for calling us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. And we long for the day when we shall be gathered with you, with your people from every tribe and tongue and nation. But until that day comes, you have called us to go out to proclaim your excellencies, to call peoples to repent and believe in the king, the king who came to set captives free. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this wonderful good news of the gospel. Give us a longing, we ask, for that day where we shall be gathered together with you. Give us a heart for those who do not know you. And through our weak, stumbling words, may the Holy Spirit use those words to stir the spirit of those we meet, of those we speak to. May you stir the spirits of those who hear the gospel to bow the knee and repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask these things, Lord Jesus, 
for your glory and for the joy of the nations. May the nations be glad, we ask in your name. Amen. Let's end by singing.